Welcome to Sex Care is Self-Care. Today, Dr. Christina Vaccaro, a member of the PBF Medical Advisory Board, is here to discuss abuse. How can we recognize it and the resources available right now? Dr. Vaccaro, if you'd like to start off introducing yourself, letting our audience know who you are and what you do. Thanks, Patty. My name is Dr. Christine Vaccaro, and I'm fellowship trained and double board certified in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, as well as obstetrics and gynecology. I'm also the fellowship director for female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery and an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology in Bethesda, Maryland. I will take this time though to tell you that I had to get some um, phoning some friends and colleagues for this. Um, I um, work in a multidisciplinary team and that includes a women's health psychologist, Dr. Daniel Worthington, and a close personal friend of mine is a licensed um, family marriage therapist. Yes, yeah, so she's a licensed family marriage therapist, um, Jacqueline Mott in Connecticut. So I did have them review this just to make sure I'm giving really good accurate information um, for the listeners and make sure that everyone really has a full breadth of information about this very serious condition. That's what I love about this panel, our board, is that you don't take any of these subjects lightly, that you make sure that you surround yourself with an amazing team uh, so that the information that we are given is accurate and up to date. So uh, that means a lot. Thank you so much for taking this extra time and going the extra mile to for to help our audience out there that's listening. Um, so let's start with the very first question. How common is physical and sexual abuse? Yeah, and sadly, Patty, we're gonna hear that it's so common and that's a really tragic uh, tragedy, but violence against women, particularly intimate partner violence and sexual violence is a major public health problem and a violation of women's health rights and human rights. Um, you may know that the, the Women's Health or the uh, World Health Organization indicated that globally one out of three, about 30% of women worldwide have been subjected to either physical and or sexual intimate partner violence or non-partner sexual violence in their lifetime. In the United States, this is nearly one in four women um, over the age of 18 have been the victim of severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Um, and as we learn more about um, health disparities, we also know that women of color and lower socioeconomic status are at the highest risk. Um, I've seen anywhere upwards of 68% in some um, communities. So this is um, a, a, serious, a serious health uh, concern. As you know, violence negatively affects a woman's mental and physical well-being, as well as their sexual and reproductive health. And the saddest part is this is completely preventable. Um, the health sector has a very important role to play um, to provide comprehensive um, health care to women subjected to violence and as an entry point to referring women to other support services they may need. Um, and although you asked about physical and sexual abuse, I wanted to mention that um, emotional abuse can be just as damaging to a woman. Um, this, this is termed um, interpersonal violence or relational abuse. Um, which includes intimate partner violence. And emotional abuse can take many forms, but a few examples are, are verbal put-downs, uh, financial control, harassment, threats, et cetera. Um, and almost half of women in the United States have experienced some form of psychological aggression by an intimate partner in their lifetime. So 
a very, very staggering statistics. Um, I'm, I'm glad, I'm so happy that you added that to the subject because, um, yes, it happens. So thank you. Uh, to many, so many victims that came forward during the Me Too movement, how common is it for women to be hurt by someone they know versus a total stranger? Yeah, and I'm glad you brought this up too because, you know, I think some women think that um, sexual violence and physical violence just happens randomly um, walking down the street or something, and that is that is almost never, ever how it happens. So the Me Too movement really brought this front and center. It brought um, sexual violence out of the shadows. Um, and just to define what the Me Too movement is, um, it's a social movement against uh, sexual abuse and sexual harassment where people publicize allegations of sexual crimes. So again, to answer your question, most of the violence um, is associated with a sexual partner they know, and this is usually not a random act. Um, more than 50, um, more than half or 51% of victims of rape reported being raped by an intimate partner and 41% reported being raped by an acquaintance. So this demonstrates that more than 90% of the time they know the perpetrator. Those are um, crazy statistics, scary. Um, we hear the word rape culture and toxic masculinity. Um, can you help us understand these terms? Yeah, and I had to, again, do some education myself um, just to, to make sure I understood the terms because they are relatively new. Um, but rape culture is uh, defined as a the system's beliefs, behaviors rooted in the, the patriarchy that allows for its prevalence in society. So here, that's a big fancy word just to say, this is power and control over women. That's basically what it is. For example, um, you know, if a woman wears a tight outfit, she's asking for it. Um, if she's drunk, somehow the rape was her fault. Um, or, or she's just making it up. She's lying about uh, the fact that it happened. So these are just a, common, a couple of common examples um, in our culture that we, we all know, we've all heard these um, thrown out. Um, but we can change it uh, by speaking up, by supporting our survivors. Um, you know, and just, just to go to the toxic masculinity, um, you know, our culture leads men, or the usual perpetrators, not always, but usually, to believe that they can get away with it. So by their power, their money, their status, um, that they can get away with these things. And then that somehow what they're doing is masculine behavior and that it's condoned or okay. Um, and the way that I think about this is like locker room talk, you know, it's common for men in the locker room to, to talk about their sexual conquests, um, talking about women as objects, um, degrading women, et cetera, et cetera. This is, this is the idea of toxic masculinity. Um, and so just a question to ponder, um, what word correlates with slut for men? And there isn't any, and, and there, there's a problem with that because men are praised for how many women they can have sex with while women are criticized. And it really, if we really are thinking about being true equals, we should, we should be on the same playing field and we're currently we're not. Um, 
just to uh, highlight this further, I found a study in college men showing that 32% of college men said that they would have sexual intercourse with a woman against her will, quote unquote, if no one would ever know and there wouldn't be any consequences. So this was staggering to me. Um, and this way of thinking must end. So uh, irrespect, irrespectful of the gender of the survivor, but again, men are usually responsible for the vast majority of sexual violence in America with 90% of the perpetrators um, of sexual violence being um, again, that are against women are men, so male perpetrators. So again, it, it, it's, it's scary and our culture needs to change this idea of, of rape culture and toxic masculinity must end. I, could, I couldn't agree more with you because we're hearing, we have been hearing, it's not like it's been a conversation that has just been brought up recently. This conversation has been happening in the la heavily in the last two years. That brings me to my next question. There are so many cases of women reporting intimate partner violence, and there are other women that are coming forward to support the victims and have similar stories with the same abuser what do you think why do you think it's so hard for some of these women to come forward i mean i'm sure there's many incidents where there hasn't been anybody to ever come forward and they've gotten away with it what takes what yeah. takes these people so long this this is a very complex question and i'm sure for every woman it's different but um, in my mind and in um, consulting with uh, my women's health psychologists and licensed family uh, practice um, therapists, really the victims are, are taught slash told to believe, number one, it's their fault. So they're, they're to blame. And then number two, that they're, they're fearful and they're fearful of a lot of things, um, public shaming, bullying, people not believing them. Maybe they're, they might lose their job or their status if it's a work-related um, uh, type of situation. So again, I think they're, they're ashamed, embarrassed. Somehow, again, they brought it upon themselves. So it's their fault. Somehow they're wrong. Um, but again, I think it's, it's extremely complicated if the, woman's, um, if the woman actually loves her abuser and sometimes he's caring towards her and then she looks past the ebbs and flow of violence. So I think there's, there's so many layers of complexity to pace based on the situation. Um, and what if the woman's a high profile um, person and this news may threaten to ruin her reputation, um, become public knowledge, being especially embarrassing. But I think the nice thing about the Me Too movement was several famous people took a stand to normalize and to discuss this, put it out in the open, um, so that you know when one brave woman does take a stand, others will also find the courage to support her and realize that they're worth it too. Um, because survivors ultimately need closure and healing, which starts with coming forward. You used two of my favorite words in describing any of this, and that is courage and bravery, uh, because it takes both. And so uh, I hear this a lot, especially working with thousands of women. And um, 
This is a, a great conversation that we're having here today. Survivors of physical and sexual abuse can experience many other physical, mental, and sexual health problems. How does this kind of trauma create a ripple effect of the health consequences? Again, this is such an important question as well. We know that the survivors of interpersonal violence have poor health outcomes overall due to chronic physical and emotional stress, which can manifest in so many ways, but, but typically chronic pain, especially pelvic pain, chronic fatigue, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, migraine headaches, insomnia, other mental health conditions, specifically depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, these are just a small list of what I see patients come in with that have had a history of, of sexual violence or physical violence. Um, and these mental health conditions can precipitate other risky behaviors. So they may not know how to deal with, with the events um, either ongoing or in the past, and so they might turn to substance abuse um, for a little um, help. They might do other risky things like have unprotected intercourse with, um, with other risky substance abusers, et cetera, or they may even try suicide attempts. So um, we know that there are so many things that can happen. And then regarding pregnancy complications, we know that pregnancy is an especially vulnerable time um, the sexual partner may or may not want another child, even though, um, you know, he, again, usually he is the one um, abusing the woman. Thus, this abused woman is more likely to have um, other bad pregnancy outcomes um, in addition to the unintended pregnancy, such as miscarriage, preterm labor, low birth weight infants, and even stillbirth. Um, and then switching gears to, to GYN health, so gynecologic health maintenance, the survivor may be hesitant about getting pelvic exams. Um, she may avoid these exams because she doesn't want to precipitate um, prior traumatic events. So it, just doing a pelvic exam on a female that's been a victim of sexual assault can cause PTSD. Um, so this may be impossible or traumatic for her to even tolerate. And on rare occasions, we do have to sedate women if we really need to get an exam for various different reasons because of their, um, of their prior history. So again, these consequences can all lead to hospitalization, disability, or death. Um, and one note about just adverse childhood experiences. Um, we know that the more physical, psychological, or sexual abuse a child experiences, the higher the likelihood of other chronic physical conditions such as heart disease and diabetes, um, in addition to other mental and, and mental health and chronic pain conditions. So it's not just um, the scars that you can't see, it actually leads to true um, other physical um, health conditions. I'm glad that you, you explained it to even when after you've come forward and you have said this is what has happened, all the things afterwards that you will go through of, you know, whether it's, you know, talking to a psychiatrist or uncomfortable examinations or, you know, there's just many things that come afterwards. It's just not being brave to tell the story, having that bravery to tell it, but it's what comes after too. You know, the, these women go through so much. And again, you know, to have somebody supporting you, 
but they're amazing. You know, these women are very brave. Uh, I also want to take a moment to talk about consent. So what is the consent culture? What is that? Yeah, I am so hopeful that this is the answer to intimate partner violence, and I'll tell you why. So consent culture, um, this goes beyond sex. This applies to everyday interactions, anything from you know, sharing a photo of someone online to asking before you give a hug, which now in COVID days is like, you, you, you got to ask about everything, you know? Um, so it's, it's literally just asking permission for everyday interactions. And the more we ask permission in everyday interactions, the more this behavior feeds into the bedroom. So specifically for sexual consent though, this is a, an agreement between participants to engage in sexual activity Preferably it's verbal, but there are nonverbal ways mm -hmm. as well. But the communication with the other person, um, you have to discuss what you want. Um, also determine, you know, that it's okay if, you're, if your thoughts are aligned or if they're not aligned, let's talk about that. So having an open communication and then you, you gotta get specific. So um, someone phrased it asking what's on the menu. So are we making out? Are we doing something more? What what what's on the menu um, of what we're doing? Because just just because you're kissing doesn't mean you want to have sex. Um, so getting specific is important. Um, knowing that consent expires, so you need to have verbal check-in. So just because you did it last week doesn't mean that it's okay this week. You know you gotta have you have to check in. Um, asking before a shift. So this is, you know, talking about your boundaries before things heat up because in another, um, another study I found 50% of men over the age 18 agreed that if your partner's willing to kiss you, she must be willing to do other sexual acts. So again, you just have to be clear of what you want. And then consent isn't just about sex. It can be other various intimate events grabbing, fondling, masturbating in front of your partner, use of toys, video or audio recording, um, and just being clear what's okay and what's not okay with you. Um, I think we've, we've heard this a lot that ignorance isn't bliss just because you don't say no doesn't mean you've said yes. So again, being clear. Um, and then, you know, couples in long-term relationships are really no different. They should also ask permission, especially when their safe zone is shifting. Like say for instance, they wanna add in a new sexual partner to the relationship or they wanna try bondage or choking or some other um, forms of sexual intimacy, they need to check in with their partner and make sure that that is okay or not okay. Um, so to, to summarize, you know, consent is really central to, to prevention of intimate partner violence, starting with education about consent of both men and women. Um, I saw this cute video that I'm sure everyone's seen and went viral. It was about, you know, can, you, can I borrow your hat? Um, and if you haven't seen it, it's really cute. It's about consent. Um, and it's a great way to teach young kids about consent as well without having to say the word sex. Um, but you know, just educating both men and women to, to know that when consent has been obtained, um, teaching males, it's important to ask and not take, and teaching females that giving consent is expected and required. Um, so I hope that one day this consent culture essentially cancels out rape culture. That's, that's my hope. 
Thank you so much. I'm gonna I'm gonna look for that video. I have not to see that video. Okay, so it's, I will. It's good. It's good. I'm gonna watch that. Um, why is this really important to talk to your doctor if you're if you're going through this? Why is it? Yeah. So just like you would discuss your risk for cancer or high blood pressure, um, you need to disclose and discuss this history of abuse um, because it relates to almost all other areas of your life and can can contribute to medical problems. So, and as providers, not only, you know, should the patient tell us, we have to ask. So providers should ask just a few simple questions. Are you in a relationship? If yes, do you feel safe in the relationship? Um, for pregnant women who again are at higher risk, they're very vulnerable, obstetricians should ask, uh, or their nurse midwife ask, um, if they've been hit, kicked, punched, or pushed. And it's in, in this, they made it very specific so that women would have to think about those actions um, instead of, do you feel safe? Because sometimes if you, you know, yes, I feel safe, but I was just hit and pushed the other day, but I still feel safe. You know, so they, they tried to make it very specific to really um, ensure the safety of the mom and baby in, in pregnancy. And again, if they're, if they answer, you know, yes to some sort of violence, then um, offering resources is critical. Um, violence that's perpetrated against women is a, a common cause of death and incapacity in the reproductive age as deaths related to cancer, which, you know, we hear about cancer all the time and it's fine to talk about cancer, but for some reason, it's not okay to talk about this and it needs, it needs more, um, more awareness. Um, so to summarize, you know, sexual abuse can have a long lasting impact on a woman's feelings about sex, um, including just a general aversion to intercourse that can last many years, even a lifetime. Um, sexual abuse can result in physical effects. Um, and I see this all the time manifesting in chronic pelvic pain or vaginismus and other, there's various other forms of chronic pain conditions um, of, of the pelvis. And usually when I take the history, there has been some sort of sexual violence in the woman's history. So. This is all great information. Um, if you are someone that you love is a victim of physical or sexual abuse, what resources are out there for them right now? Now, Patty, if you Google this, there's a, a million, a million resources, but the one that I think is the easiest to remember and was recommended by both of um, my phone, phone some friends for this topic, um, the resource is thehotline.org. Um, pretty easy to remember and has myriad of resources available. Um, usually each state also has their own resources as well. But I think what's important to share here is that the, the victims, um, if they come to you or to us for these um, events, we need to make sure we're maintaining their autonomy. We don't want to choose for them or tell them what to do. Um, so we need to be respectful of their autonomy and offer help. Um, it could be as easy as saying, could I help you with resources? Um, and then this kind of goes back to the consent culture. You're asking her consent to help her um, in, instead of uh, taking over and doing something for her. So offer the resources, support her decision, avoid judgment 
Um, and then can't say it enough, reassure, reassure, reassure them this is not their fault because oftentimes they're made to believe that it is. And then offer some numbers for them that are um, in your local area. So emergency numbers, um, that there's 24-7 chat and phone lines on the hotline.org. There's shelters, there's other resources um, that can be found on that website, um, the hotline.org. But the, the bottom line is offer resources, um, help them get the resources, then they, they, those resources help them create a plan um, for safety. And those are, those are the essential first steps. Amazing information. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Vaccaro, for all this great information that you gave us here today uh, on this very important topic. You can go to the pattybrisbanefoundation.org for more information on our foundation and our six focus areas. You can also download our hashtag Let's Discuss Patient Pocket Cards to help you start your discussion with your physician. Remember, sex care is self-care and sexual health matters.